Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to another edition of This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at our progressive paper of record. And this is something I've been doing every Friday live at 11 on the post-progressive Facebook group for the post-progressive post, which is a creation of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And um, I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to have them host me. Um, this is, I think, the sixth one I've done. And uh, so, you know, I use it to as a, as a means of jumping off point to talk about the news and current events, which is what I do at the Daily Evolver. That's my podcast for 10 years. You can find my stuff there. Uh, I have a Daily Evolver YouTube station. Uh, and so what we're going to do is look at the issues and see how they're covered by the New York Times for the most part. And I'm going to jump off from other areas as well, too. So two weeks ago, I talked about a very significant column written by one of the deans of their editorial page, Brett Stevens. And I consider, and I explained this, that Brett Stevens and Ross Douthat, uh, and there are a couple others as well, are, I think, proto-integral. Uh, they're both columnists for the New York Times, and they, they sort of uh, come from a, and it's an interesting thing that, you know, a lot of integralists come out of progressivism and, you know, and, and uh, that's just the natural move into a post-progressive, what we're calling it, integral stage. But a lot of other ones actually come in from modernism and even in a sense from traditionalism. And these two guys exemplify that. Brett Stevens is a modernist. He's a globalist. He's a secularist. And, and yet he has, he's in the New York Times, he's in this progressive milieu, he's downloaded the truths of progressivism in terms of, you know, ecology and civil rights and that sort of thing, feminism, uh, gay rights, all that good stuff. And then there's Ross Douthat, who is a committed Catholic. And, uh, you know, he lives in an enchanted world that is lit up by the love of God, and he's not shy about that. And yet he's super intelligent. And he also has downloaded the truths of modernity, rationality, and the sensitivity of progressivism. So, you know, in, in a way, they're both living in multiple worlds. And that's itself proto-integral, where you can handle that. So last week, so anyway, regarding Afghanistan, uh, which is, of course, the big story of our time right now, the withdrawal of the American troops in Afghanistan and the takeover by the Taliban, uh, they came out on different sides of this issue. And two weeks ago, Brett Stevens put out a column that I talked about called Disaster in Afghanistan Will Follow Us Home. And he made the following points. He said, Biden owns this moment and he owns the consequences. We should begin to anticipate them now. And then he puts out five consequences of the withdrawal. One, the killing won't stop. Two, the women will become chattel. Three, Afghanistan will become a magnet to jihadists everywhere. Four, what happens in Afghanistan won't stay there. And five, America's geopolitical position will be greatly damaged. And, um, and I talked about that. Uh, I also did a, uh, a, a show on the Daily Evolver 
called Afghanistan, colon, the integral reasons for staying and leaving. And I guess I'd put out my own view here now, which is that I don't know. I actually think that's a more integral view these days. I mean, I, I understand Brett Stevens' point, and I understand what Ross Douthat is saying this week. He just wrote a significant column this week, which I'll get to in a second, but um, that argues the opposite. And I think at Integral, you know, one of the things we want to do is to argue various positions uh, as well as these various worldviews do. So we want to argue the progressive vision. We want to argue the modernist vision. We want to argue the traditionalist vision, uh, as, kind of as well as they do. And so that's why I do find myself in a don't know space. It's not a naive don't know space, which is sort of a green anti-intellectualism that says we can't know anything. We can know a lot, but we don't know the future <laughs> and we don't know the outcomes of these decisions like leaving Afghanistan in a, in a growing frothy world. Uh, so I want to just be a little more comfortable with that. So anyway, let's get to Ross Douthat's critique of basically Brett Stevens <laughs> and other uh, people in uh, the sort of modernist view. The title of his uh, column, and it's two or three days old now, is Joe Biden's critics lost, lost Afghanistan. And he talks about how cynical he has been over the, the war in the last years. And that he didn't think he was, he realized now he wasn't cynical enough. And here's what he says. He says, my cynicism consisted of the belief that the American effort to forge a decent Afghan political settlement failed definitively during Barack Obama's first term in office, when a surge of US forces blunted, but did not reverse the Taliban's recovery. This failure was then buried under a Vietnam-esque blizzard of official deceptions and bureaucratic lies, which covered over a shift in American priorities from the pursuit of victory to the management of stalemate with the American presence insulated from casualties in the hopes that it could be sustained indefinitely. Under this strategic vision, and I use the word strategic generously, this is still him talking, there would be no prospect of victory, no end to corruption among our allies and collateral damage from airstrikes, no clear reason to be in Afghanistan as opposed to say, any other failing state or potential terror haven, except for the sunk costs that we were there already. So that last, last line deserves a little bit of um, uh, examination. He says that there was no clear reason to stay in Afghanistan as opposed to any other failing state of which there are many or potential terror havens of which there are many in the planet, except for that we had sunk costs there. Brett Stevens specifically addressed that issue in his column with a, you know, a line, it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. And again, I can hold both of them. He said, our inability to help everyone everywhere doesn't relieve us of the obligation to help someone somewhere. And especially when we kind of went in there and started it. 
So I can hold both of those. Okay, so back to Ross Douthat. He said, okay, so this was sort of this, this sort of consensus about stalemate. And the logic continued that if American casualty rates stayed low enough, the public would accept it, the Pentagon budget would pay for it, and nobody would have to preside over anything so humiliating as defeat. And then he basically argues against several of the arguments that Brett Stevens made, and there are three of them here. He says, argument number one, that the war was stable. And Ross Douthat says, in fact, only US casualties were low. Afghan military and civilian casualties were nearing 15,000 annually, and the Taliban was clearly gaining ground, suggesting that we would have needed periodic surges of U.S. forces and periodic spikes in U.S. deaths to prevent a slow motion version of what happened quickly when we left. So that's his argument against the war was stable. Two. An indefinite occupation was morally, this is another argument from Stevens and the, you know, the non-cynics, if you will. Argument number two, an indefinite occupation was morally necessary to nurture the shoots of Afghan liberalism, to which Douthat responds, okay, but if after 20 years of effort and $2 trillion, which he says, it, it's useful to spell it out with two zero 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 $2 trillion. If after 20 years of effort, $2 trillion, the theocratic alternative to liberalism actually takes over a country faster than its initial conquest, that's a sign that our moral achievements were outweighed by the moral costs of corruption, incompetence, and drone campaigns. I get that. I get both of those. You know, so sue me. Okay, here's argument number three. This is another argument that Douthat is countering. Uh, and this is the argument that a permanent mission in Afghanistan could come to resemble in some way our long-term presence in Germany or South Korea. And, um, and to which Douthat says, this is a delusional historical analogy before the collapse of the Kabul government and completely ludicrous one now. Uh, and, and I think there's a little integral explanation that we could bring to this issue. Um, the fact that it's a delusional analogy because of the collapse of the Kabul government is, I don't, that's not uh, the argument. The Nazis were completely uh, collapsed as well. Uh, after World War II. The difference is, and this is also true of South Korea, and this is the part that I think, it, you know, it's de delusional in the sense that it doesn't take development into account. Development would just explain so much more than these arguments often do. But what the development argument would say is that, the, that uh, Afghanistan um, was uh, center of gravity red and blue. There was some orange shoots happening. They, they were nurtured by our 20 years and $2 trillion. I think they need to be noticed. I don't think they, they need to be completely abandoned. I don't know how that works, but I do want to say that there was some modern movement in the last 20 years, and there is just in general in countries that are uh, 
in uh, otherwise pre-modern. And, uh, and the, the center of gravity of South Korea and Germany after World War II was blue orange. They actually had a lot of modern sensibilities. They certainly had modern technology, which Afghanistan has none of. So uh, that's so much more helpful. And it, it does make the case that, um, you know, no, a permanent mission in Afghanistan could not uh, ultimately resemble Germany and South Korea. I mean, we would always be fighting an insurgency. All right, so a uh, couple other points from Douthat. He says, all of these arguments that are connected to a set of moods, and these are these three arguments about how you know we need to stay there. All these arguments are connected to a set of moods that flourished after 9-11, a mix of cable news encouraged overconfidence in American military capacities. Okay, um, yes, in, in a sense, it's certainly overconfidence in uh, the uh, idea that we can uh, foist another worldview on a people. I used to think that too. Uh, but I don't think that anymore. We've all learned that. But America's military capacities, are, please, they're, they're enormous. And uh, if we wanted to fight in uh, World War II ways, we could have leveled the place. Uh, we didn't because of moral development. Just think that's worth noting. Okay, so the other mood that flourished after 9-11 was a naive World War II nostalgia. And that's kind of my point here. World War II was seen as a good war. But if you look at World War II and how it unfolded, I mean, nothing went according to plan. There was disasters in every sense of the word ongoing. Um, it, you know, it made the, 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 the withdrawal from Kabul seem mild. Uh, I think of the Battle of the Bulge, uh, where America's had, Americans had 75,000 casualties in one day or two days, the Germans had 100,000 lost, you know. So, um, the, yeah, uh, the, 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 there's, a, there's a shift that the World War II nostalgia does need to be brought into reality. So I agree there. And then number three, he said that this, the third mood was this crusading humanitarianism in its liberal and neoconservative forms. And he says, like most Americans, I shared in these moods once. After so many years of failure, I cannot imagine indulging in them now. I agree, you know, uh, and this is it's self-development. Disillusionment is a big stage, of, a big uh, feature of development. He goes on, our botched withdrawal is the punctuation mark on a general catastrophe, a failure so broad that it should demand purges in the Pentagon, the shamed retirement of innumerable hawkish talking heads, Brett Stevens, the raising of various NGOs and international studies programs, and the dissolution of countless consultancies and military contractors. Okay, I think there's a little baby bathwater thing going on here, especially with the raising of various NGOs and international studies programs. I don't know about that. I think these programs learn from Afghanistan. I think the, the, the talking heads learn, the you know, consultancies learn, the military co contractors learn. 
And, you know, again, as, as I talked about in my, my longer podcast about this, the Taliban, the new Taliban wants, apparently wants to fit into the modern world. We'll, we'll see. I mean, the, the Taliban stretches over a couple developmental stages too. There's the ones who do want to fit in the modern world and there's the ones who actually don't. But to the degree that they do, and likely the ones that do will be in charge of the government, um, they're going to have to play by modern rules, you know, or else they're going to be shut out, uh, and which, you know, economically they already are. And, and you know, and that, that, that uh, faucet will be turned on as they sort of bring a, uh, more respect to the liberal shoots that have grown in Afghanistan. And I think that's worth noting and that it's, you know, we, we just don't raise all of this, you know, and just to dissolve all of this, it's, um, it's a bit much. And, and so is this last paragraph where he has, where he says, uh, small wonder then that making Biden the singular scapegoat seems like a more attractive path than, you know, decimating all these um, consultancies and retiring the, all the generals. So they're going to make Biden the, the, this what what uh, Obama thought of as this uh, foreign policy blob, this you know thought groove in Washington D.C. about foreign policy that was wrong, wrong, wrong. Wants to make Biden the scapegoat, and and then he finishes. He says, "But if the only aspect of this catastrophe that our leaders remember." is what went wrong in August 2021, then we'll have learned nothing except to always double down on failure and the, and the next disaster will be worse. And, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm so put off by that whole thinking. You know, it's so easy, the next disaster will be worse. Not if history is any guide. You know, it's easy to say stuff like that because it's, everybody's, yeah, it's so bad. You know, how horrible, how stupid, you know, we're, we're, this condemnation of humanity is, is it's got to stop. What's hard to say, actually, is Afghanistan at this moment, is Afghanistan is our least disastrous war. After the next least disastrous war, before the one before that in Korea, you know, Vietnam, Korea, World War II, and the next one, if we have it at all, which is less and less likely as the world becomes more and more modern. Modern countries don't go to war with each other. Modern countries have gone to war with pre-modern countries as we see in Iraq, in Iran, Libya, we've learned our lesson. We've grown. And if by some chance we do it again, it will likely be less disastrous. Ross Douthat, yeesh, okay. Okay, another little quickie. Uh, somebody sent me this, uh, and I thought it was interesting. It's actually not from the New York Times. It's from the CNN um, online page, and it, it illustrates something that I, that I think is is interesting developmentally. The, the headline is "Far Right Groups Praise Taliban Takeover." So the far right groups in the U.S. are praising the Taliban. And uh, it goes, several concerning trends have emerged in recent weeks on online platforms commonly used by anti-government, white supremacist, and other domestic violence extremist groups. 
including, quote, framing the activities of the Taliban as a success and a model for those who believe in the need for a civil war in the U.S. The Department of Homeland Security's office, John Cohen said in a uh, call to law enforcement. Some people, he reported, are commending the Taliban's takeover as, quote, a lesson in love for the homeland, for freedom and for religion. Uh, and then this is these uh, people talking, this is from a Proud Boy site, quote, these farmers and minimally trained men, the Taliban, fought to take their nation back from globo homo. They took back their government, installed their national religion as law, and executed dissenters. If white men in the West had the same courage as the Taliban, we would not be ruled by the Jews currently. You know, it gets nauseating. But it, it's, it's racist like the Taliban is. And it's interesting, and this is a global phenomenon. I talked about it uh, at length during the Trump term, where the conservatives in this country went from being, you know, completely reflexively hawkish on Russia to friendly to Russia, because they sort of like uh, Big Daddy. They like uh, uh, more authoritarian. They don't. They're not crazy. In fact, they're quite allergic to multiculturalism, uh, to um, you know, the sexual revolution to gender, all of that stuff. They don't want it. And they see Russia and now, you know, Tucker Carlson with Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, that there's a globalization of developmental stages, a solidarity of traditionalists around the world. And they're finding each other. This points to a, uh, a globalization of what would be more on the red side, the holy warrior. It's not just holy, but it's the warrior. So it's it's red, blue, if you will, in spiral dynamics, and um, and so we have these groups in the United States, and you know they're racist, they're you know anti-feminist, they're certainly anti-homosexual and all that that stuff. You know they have this sort of same things as a patriot. They have that 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 blood and you know honor and the land and ancestor thing. It's not a, it's a beautiful thing in its place. And it's, there's actually dimensions of that that we want to bring into integral. Everything but the fascism. You know, that's true of every stage. We want to bring everything but the fundamentalism into integral that they've got. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we're seeing that happen and, you know, people do magnetize to other people in their worldviews more than they do their country. And now we're finding each other, you know, through the, um, actually the lower right, the technology of post-modernity, which is, you know, social media and, and this endless news cycles. Okay, it's 1124. I want to keep these two and a half hour, but I do... I think we have time to go over this next one, which is a little different. It's coming from a different angle. And this is um, from August 27th, New York Times. Uh, and it's an article about, you can see it here. Harvard's chief chaplain is an atheist. And there he is. And he is, uh, I'll read it. Harvard University, a school that was established to educate the ministry and adopted the motto truth for Christ and the church. Nearly four centuries later, 
has elected as its next president of the Chaplains Association, an atheist named Greg Epstein, who takes on the job this week. And they go on. Mr. Epstein, 44, author of the book, Good Without God is a seemingly unusual choice for the role. Uh, and it goes on, there's a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition, but still experience a real need for uh, conservation and support around what it means to be a good person or conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and live an ethical life, says Mr. Epstein. Um, he became a humanist chaplain in 2005 teaching students about the progressive movement that centers people's relationship with one another instead of with God. And it, it's, it's interest, extra interesting to me in a sense because um, 20 years ago, I uh, was in a position where I wanted to go to divinity school. I just sold a business. I was, you know, still needed a life and a new thing. And so I went around and checked out various divinity schools and one of them was Harvard. And I spent two or three days there and I had a guide who was a student from the Harvard Divinity School and she took me around and took me to classes and was great with me. And I, there was one thing that she said that just, you know, bounced in my head uh, and, and still does. And I remember actually when she said it, we were walking along one of these beautiful paths in, in, on the campus and she turned to me and said, I have to tell you that there's one big problem with the Harvard Divinity School. And that is, nobody here believes in God. <laughs> so, you know, what we're seeing is developmentally, you know, it's not like the religious impulse goes away. It's not like the, all of the, the sort of morality and so forth that is installed by religious belief, the need for that goes away. And so this is a natural movement. This is progressive spirituality where the God part, which has been jettisoned by modernity, the previous stage in its, you know, um, uh, uh, rational fascism, if you will, mean modernity got rid of God, uh, but Green uh, doesn't want to bring, bring him back. So Green uh, comes in with this humanist thing, and and particularly the you know this interpersonal uh, relationship, uh, inter inter finding God interpersonally. It's like here's Epstein. He says we don't look for a for a God for answers. We are each other's answers. So this is, you know, progressive spirituality. And then they go on and he says, being able to find value, values and rituals, but not, but not having to believe in magic, that is a powerful thing. So getting the rituals and values without magic, fine, fair enough, but there's a stage beyond that. <laughs> and that's where we want to bring the magic back. And maybe even God, you know, in a liberated way. But some divine other, you know, something that we could relate to. This is a more integral sensibility, in my opinion. And, um, you know, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago, I went over Ross Douthat's column, which I thought was very significant, where he was how to be religious without, uh, how to think your way to God, I think was the name of it. And it was sort of an intellectual argument for the existence of God. And um, the, the, 
but but for him it was a, you know a, a a move into you know christianity a sort of enlightened christianity which is fine i mean even in the integral movement we see people who are trying to work with integral christianity integral buddhism integral hinduism and you know sort of bring this integral view to the traditions as they you know take the traditions to the next stage fine fair enough but I think there's a religion. I don't. It's not in existence yet. Uh, we'll have to talk about it for a century before it is probably. But I'm talking about it, and that's the religion of emergence itself. This finding magic, you know, integral. We we actually do want to go back and reintegrate the myth of traditionalism, the magic of the warrior and tribal stage, and even the awareness without thought that comes from the stages before self consciousness. You know. That, that we that's that's the new thing and and seeing that the uh, fact that science reveals to us that 13.8 billion years ago something emerged out of nothing and more has emerged out of less in terms of complexity goodness truth and beauty ever since um, and that has culminated in me talking to you in this moment. <laughs> Well, you know, it's culminated in us. And there's a, as I often say, there's a religion in there somewhere. So um, uh, good luck to the atheist uh, divinity school. And, you know, I get what they're doing and it's a stage on the path. And I wish them magic in their future. Okay. And God even. I think that'll do it for today. Oh, good. Yeah, 1131. That's not too bad. And um, yeah, thanks for joining me again this week in the New York Times. I'm doing it every week, uh, 11 o'clock Mountain Time on the Google page. I'm, I'm sorry, the, the Facebook Live page for Post Progressive. Uh, check out the Post Progressive Post. Check out the Daily Evolver. And you can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. Uh, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm getting uh, more and more subscribers there. And that's kind of cool. Okay. Thanks, folks. See you next time.